All right, welcome. On Behind the API, we talk to people who work to build awesome API products, and we learn about their journey, learnings, and then just overall approach to that. And on today's session for Behind the API, we're joined with Richard Fortune, uh, Richard's product manager at Zero in the developer experience area for over a decade. And he's also very busy with advising on product strategy in his spare time. We're gonna learn about all those things. Uh, but to start us off, Richard, you wanna give us a little background on what you currently do at Zero um, and where you're based out of. Sure, Kirby. Hello there, everyone. Um, my name is Richard Fortune. Um, and yeah, I work for Zero in one of its offices uh, here in New Zealand, um, um, in Wellington. And for those of us who don't know, Zero is a global um, accounting and small business platform. And you know, I've been with them since you know 2010, I believe. So you know, um, back when it was 60, 60 staff, and, and now it's at 4,000. So you can say we've been on a bit of a journey. Um, I work in the ecosystem team at Zero, and I always have. Um, I consider myself a bit of a platform business native, um, and nowadays I manage the developer experience product and the partner experience products um and yeah i'm loving it i used to be an engineer i worked in quality and so i've kind of been quite hands-on with all the apis at zero built in the early days and when the opportunity to move into product you know tackling the problems that partners and developers as customers face came up i jumped at it and i'm very happy yeah. to do this. well thanks for having thanks for being with us today and uh, you and I had had a conversation earlier and you had called something out to me that I absolutely loved. You said, you know, when a product transitions into being a platform and when platforms become ecosystems and zero is like at the forefront of that, you know, it's known as one of the uh, companies that has some of the best API documentation and you see it embedded in a lot of, you know, tools like Kodak and Rudder and things that are, you know, syncing all the systems, but obviously it wasn't like that all the time. And so, um, your team has built an awesome experience, but if we were going to take a step back, what were the early days of Zero like? You know, what was it like ten years ago when it was first? When you guys were making some of those first decisions on even thinking about developer experience? Yep. Um, back in the early days, uh, we had you know Rod the Zero founder who was quite a visionary. You know, he, he saw the opportunity in moving you know the ledger to the cloud, and and at the same time, you know very early in zeros live kicked off the api team uh, and there were just three of us um to begin with and you know that was, it's quite a shallow team to take on such responsibility and so in the early days it was we were winging it like any other startup uh, I, I believe that the original de developer who created our apis um and, and kind of set that pattern that we followed with um did that kind of as a hack project to the side, you know, and then was moved off to another problem space. And so we inherited this thing and, you know, as hilarious as things are in startup world, we even inverted the, the, the rest verbs. And so I don't know if anyone notices that we've, we've got those back to front before, you know, before there was real rigor over this thing. And, and, you know, that was not fantastic developer experience. So, you know, in the early days, we were very hands-on with our developers, speaking to them so regularly because you know many of them are based in New Zealand, seeing the opportunity and connecting with Zero, and so we're very very happy to meet with us in person, to meet with our product leader at the time, Tony Rule, and really grow together with us. And so that was the early stages. We didn't feel like 
we felt like we were enabling others and we just felt like we were doing as much as we could to expose the value of zero to others. And so at that, at that point in time, we were just laying down, you know, the infra we thought others needed. Um, probably of note back then is that API first wasn't really a thing. Um, and so we were duplicating that core capability that zero had, which is an, you know, an enormous anti-pattern, something that we're all very well aware of nowadays. But what it meant was, you know, even just working with developers 10 years ago, they would see something available in the UI and go, hey, why can't I get this via your API? And we're like, well, funny story, you know, all that logic is embedded in the front end and we don't have access to that via our APIs. And they were like, well, what are APIs? So um, yeah, so back in those days, it was a lot of education and advocacy and growing together. And you know, something I've been reflecting on, you know, re more recently is that you know, you kind of forget how much you've forgotten. Uh, and I think that's very much the case here. You know, back in those early days, none of the very firm patterns that exist today were around. And you know, the world is a better place for it. You know, and, and surely stuff we'll cover today, Kirby, and what that API landscape looks like and how it's improved. So whenever um, you had that first core chunk of customers and they were providing you feedback and it was a team of three, when did it switch to where the company started saying like, wow, you know, we're getting a lot of good feedback here. Was there an inflection point where it kind of went from feeling like startup and a hack project and, you know, Richard's wearing all of the hats with the other two team members to like, wow, we've got a full team here, or this is becoming part of our go to market strategy. Um, you know, what was kind of the like when the wind shifted? I think, yeah, it's a really interesting question because we were kind of building. So for the first five years, I think we were just enabling growth. That was a moat enabler for zero. Uh, you know, our CEO really saw that, and so that buy-in existed. So mainly, the priority was which internal or which product capabilities did we want to externalize. And so, you know, and like I said, because we were on this divergent path where we were replicating core experience, that's what we were doing. We we're going, hey, look, our customers are telling us they want access to invoices or they want to be able to do this. Um, the, the flip side to it was um, Zero has always been a kind of a part of its go-to-market has been around partnership. You know, we partnered with accountants very early on and that was a, a USP for us. And so partnership was very core to our DNA. Uh, and so looking at that, that partnership drove a lot of the decisions in what we prioritize as a set of APIs. And quite often the developers we were working with were employees of SaaS companies or founders of SaaS companies. It was less the, the grassroots kind of developer, you know, very tech savvy developers that are kind of foraging throughout the world today, leveraging opportunities. Back then it was more people that saw an absolute gap or a gap related to what they already wanted to do. You know, and, you know, fintech is a standout uh, kind of platform opportunity. I think that's kind of presenting itself as very true when you look at all the big kind of platforms out there. You know, this fintech space is is very much, you know, ripe for disruption and, and opportunity. And the value is very obvious to people because it translates into efficiencies or business transactions very quickly. So for us, that the early days was more about enabling that uh, or enabling practices to operate more efficiently uh, or to migrate off what they were doing. You know, there's a whole there's a whole transfer that's happened over the last decade, you know, where on-premise was the norm. And so people had to get off the cloud. And so as that, you know, getting onto the cloud, sorry. So as that was happening, our APIs enable that, whether it was mass migration or new, you know, new opportunities to be exposed. A standout 
company that comes to mind is um, a point of sale app that's built out of New Zealand called Vend. You know, they were a very early partner with us. Our current EGM, Nick Holdsworth, was, you know, their number two employee, coincidentally. Um, and, you know, they've grown up with us and then have become their own breakaway success. And I think exited to, I think it was at Lightspeed for like 400 million, you know, two years ago or so. So, you know. Not bad. Yeah. And it, it just, it never felt like we enabled that. It felt like it was a partnership. And, it, you know, and I think that's, that's always been the mindset. And so when people were giving us feedback as to give us A or B, enable us to do this, it was our product managers at the time who really understood the what that enablement would unlock, what kind of capabilities that would unlock, and, and not just for one potential partner or dev, but for many. And so that's kind of the lens we use to prioritize what got built, what didn't, or what was an emergency fix. The real challenge is um, when you're an API team, all the peripheral effort that needs to go into providing that as a service. So we're talking about gateways, reporting, internal and in the back of house administration, all, all the good stuff that means you can, you know, expose APIs safely or have an open platform. And so those are all the things that we do in the background that people in our forums are going, you know, <laughs> we want this now, give it to us now. And we're like, yeah, you know, um, no one wants to hear excuses and we don't like giving them, but that is a reality if you, you know, um, I think um, Christina was on that on that talk with us as well. You know, and Pandium and Pandium offer that as a service as well, the ability to to manage relationships. But any any anyone who's trying to expose you know um, APIs, they will inevitably either have to find someone to provide that solution for them or build it for themselves. Um, yeah, so so yeah. since you guys were at such a forefront, you know, ten years ago, and you know you're kind of building up in this space, <clears throat> and you're starting to talk about the auxiliary things that come with having that API, was there one like re-architecture moment or two oh, or yeah. seven re-architecture moments where it said like, <laughs> wow, we're growing so much. And then everyone's like, this technology is the end of life. You know, the tech debt's too big to carry and you can't get these like parallel situations going on. And then you know, Richard's coming in from the side saying, oh yeah, we have all this internal tooling we need to build as well. Like when you're, when you're in the product management space for a growing and successful API product, when do you start to think about you know, pre-planning that stuff or what was kind of the some of the kickers for you along the way? So the team um, that the API team we've um, that were kind of there at the beginning, uh, obviously we went through some crazy times together. You know, there was these massive growth opportunities, you know, um, you know, for instance, in the early days, we didn't have rate limiting, you know, so it's, it's essentially there wasn't the kind of controls that you needed. We've had massive migration. Zero itself migrated off Rackspace. I can't remember what year it was, but moved over to AWS. And so that in itself was this enormous, you know, organizational shift. Um, from the API perspective, absolutely, I would say OAuth 1 was an enormous migration led by a standout PM who's now gone to Atlassian, Adam Moore. Um, and it's never as easy as you expect. You see it coming on the horizon for years. And because you've now got this distributed set of relationships, managing that and moving that and orchestrating that is a Herculean effort. And so like hats off to Adam Moore who led that for us. You know, it, he had to work with partners who didn't want to move. He had to work with devs who were like, what, I own that thing? What, <laughs> I, I have an app that, you know, that you use or, or even non-technical businesses who may have outsourced that problem years ago and are still getting value from it, but have taken it as table stakes for their operation because they didn't need to do anything with it. And then all of the, out of a sudden, they're kind of going, what, I've got to update some code somewhere to go to OAuth 2. So we've had several, you know, the implementation of webhooks, um, 
probably some kind of nitty gritty moving of tech to enable like our operations to move faster. Um, but I think all of that experience in the early days has really informed how I look at the horizon as a product manager for Zero. So, you know, probably more to your, in line with your question, we definitely look a few years ahead now, way more than we used to, because you get the breathing room to think more strategically. You know, in the early days, you're kind of like, this needs to exist and it needs to exist yesterday. Nowadays, it's like the organization, the value we're creating needs to exist and needs to continue to exist for a decade to come. So big ones, you know, for us would be um, our integration management system that was replatformed two years ago. I led that. And in the replatforming of that, we turned that into a platform product itself. And, and I mean platform product insofar as it is a product that offers a set core of capabilities, but anyone in Zero can build capabilities into and it can grow. So outside of our pod, other teams can basically extend its functionality so that Zero's ability to respond to scale is horizontal and, and kind of that way then we can move out and we have a unified um library ux library that we can leverage and so that, that was built by another part of zero and this is something i refer to as platform patterns is like when a business creates value for itself that allows it to 10x later uh, that's, that's a real platform pattern for me and so like that's what's happened with Z zero's ui library we were able to leverage that we we're able to leverage other patterns internally and now any team at zero can now build um integration management experiences and expose them through our pod and so our pod is like you know it's three engineers it's extremely still like, like we're really thin on many in many ways um you know no business ever has access to all the resources it needs you've got to be incredibly strategic in the way you plan and you know the just your point the the experiences we had in the early days have definitely informed how i prioritize you know because when we when we talk about building integration management as a platform people are like whoa well, that's a bit you know, that's a heavy that's a heavyweight decision to make you know it took you know two years but the payoff will be you know, into the decades, like, the, you know, outside of the tech itself becoming um, out of date, that capability will not date, you know, and it just really sets us up for success. And as you know, I'm leaving zero. So, you know, I won't be around the domain knowledge I have won't be around. So it's quite nice to know that we've codified our pattern and it's mm -hmm. there for others to leverage. Um, and so that's, that's the kind of next level thing we're kind of aiming for in our group. It's kind of like looking to the horizon and, and what needs to be there because, you know, companies grow up, people move on, but you still need to have that core capability. So for a project that, you know, is a two-year build, it's like a sizable investment. And it kind of gets to me to, like in your career, you've been able to work at zero with external developers, you're kind of listening to those first communities. And now you're talking about even how to unlock 10x value inside of zero, allowing people to use this integration platform. So before you're even writing any code on that, how what are some methods that you and your team use to be as user-centric as possible and try to uncover opportunities for developer delight that say, for example, other uh, companies or product managers like myself could learn from to be like, okay, we're gonna be making something new here. It's gonna be a big investment. You know, how do we make it awesome? That is a great question. Um, so our GM, Dan Young, he's he's you know very much been focused on developer delight for such a long time. He's you know he's been really embedded with our community and, and been quite high touch. You know he's kind of had some you know in person events that he's really championed and a lot of dev TV and stuff like that. So we've been quite present in trying to you know um, connect with our developer community. I think when we talk in terms of developer delight, a challenge we faced is kind of resetting some of the journeys we've been on and kind of going, hey, look, it's very hard for us to do that right now. 
um, because fundamentally the delight will come when they achieve success. And so, mm -hmm. you know, whether, you know, you've kind of got to get to that base level, are our APIs unlocking that success for others? And then the next level up from that, how easy is it for them to manage the relationship once they have a relationship because that's continuing to enable success for them. And so we've kind of come through those table stakes quite reasonably, I feel, you know, our users might definitely will have some feedback to tell me I'm wrong on that one, but there are table stakes where they can, you know, the, the relationship is functional, but more recently we've, we've kind of stepped back a bit. Uh, I'm starting to do a lot of um, system service design, you know, to kind of go look really what are the jobs to be done here and who are the people we're trying to enable to be successful? Are they an employee? Are they a contractor? Are they a independent dev who just wants to seize the opportunity of building on zero or are they a SaaS company? Blah, blah, blah. And so all those different developers personas kind of have to be well understood. And so before we can delight, we need to step back and say, how are we making these people successful? The um, <clears throat> upside to that is working internally at zero and influencing the developer community inside zero and making them aware of that opportunity when they make decisions. And so luckily enough, our CTO has done a big reset on that and we are moving towards being an API first organization. And that way then it makes my job a lot easier to go, when you write the decks, you know, look, we have an API catalog internally. And so when you write the docs for your APIs, if you create them in open API spec, we've got a workflow that can consume that and now create public documentation in one nice seamless workflow. So your team doesn't have to worry about how we externalize and attract devs to build on your thing. So we can kind of go like, Shh, and we can reduce the time to API consumption. And so there are two ways to look at it. It's how quickly can we get new value into the hands of devs to delight them? And I don't know if I feel like I've answered your question, but you know, the touch points as well, we can definitely enhance those. I think I'm probably avoiding it right now because I think it's a work in progress that I can't, you know, really speak to directly. <laughs> I think it's okay and you've acknowledged it, but we always feel we can do better. Yeah. Yeah, there's something that I, I'm really taking away from that in the sense that a lot of times at a company we're breaking up the monolith, that we're making microservices, and then some of those microservices will become available externally. Uh, but even in your talking about you're talking about developer delight internally where it's like, I have an internal developer community. And oftentimes I feel like there's conversations around, oh, we need a DevRel who's gonna go work with all these external people, but not even kind of, you know, treating that tribe internally as their own community as well, that needs just as good of tools, just as good of documentation. And that's a really cool takeaway. Now, outside of Zero, you also do a lot of um, consulting and, you know, obviously have a product mindset in that. So if a new company, uh, was going to come to you and say, hey, Richard, like we're going to launch this API product. And earlier you had mentioned about table stakes. Table stakes are changing. What used to be delightful maybe five years ago is now just table stakes. We think about like documentation, tools, sandbox, whatever it is. And so um, what are some of the things that you would say to a new startup where like, no, it's not delight, it's table stakes. And then what are some um, things you might recommend or like one to two pitfalls to avoid? for launching a startup, launching a new API? Yeah, it, um, I guess let's assume that they're unaware that their future depends on it. So let's just say they're not a Stripe, they, you know, that they are like, you know, that, let's just, let's assume that because if you're a Stripe, you're going to do whatever it takes and you have that kind of almost codified into your culture. Um, so let's assume it's someone who has, who thinks their position is X, that we, we solve this for others. Um, I would say dial forward five years, 10 years, and look at the landscape around you and say, how are you going to protect uh, uh, protect your, your niche? Uh, or how are you going to increase the value you can create? And, you know, I firmly believe that, you know, you're starting to see this 
go to ecosystem language emerge on um, LinkedIn. I, I think that's the very beginning of the wedge to where you know non-technical people have an awareness of what integrations between SaaS companies really, really means. And if you're a technologist building software today, you know if you have the awareness to do that, you've got to look at how mature the rest of the world is going to be five years from now. And you know they'll be coming to market going. I know X, Y, and Z provide this capability. Let's speak to their tech and augment our product with that. And if you've shut the door on that now, it's going to be very costly to fix later. And it, it might not be, you know, there's a lot of people just building on GraphQL for the mobile, you know, experience, yada, yada. So it may not be. And so that may not be as much of a switch as I've experienced. But I think nonetheless, having your position very firmly addressed in your mind, who are we, what are we here to solve and how are we going to continually solve it or grow what we're solving? You've got to look laterally, you know, one of the things I'm hyper aware of, which we may have talked about before is um, externalizing value creation. If you think about partnership as the, your ability to leverage others to create more value for your customers and the partnership, you can negotiate the details of that later. You know, the more valuable you are, obviously the power dynamic shifts. So that's, less good when you're a startup depending on what you have access to mm -hmm. so you're probably going to feel vulnerable to that and you're going to feel a bit at risk but thinking longer term and being aware of that pattern means that like you can be you know aware of who we want to partner with today who do we need to partner with who do we definitely not need to partner with because just because they're a big name brand they provide zero value to the customers we're trying to reach and so a lot of this is potentially less technical and thinking, but, you know, I feel like API first is table stakes, then accessing people who get value from leveraging your APIs is next step, if that's going to be part of your go to market. And then after that, it's how do you create success together? When I think of back to that vend who exited, we, you know, they created that value completely outside of us, we can take no credit for that. But we were definitely part of their go to market, you know, it was by using zero, the point of sale services that provided were end-to-end -end much better because the results ended up in the ledger at the end of the day without any effort. Yeah. We didn't want that solution. That feels like it, it's a no-brainer now, but it was novel back then. And so what can you do at the equivalent of that in your space today? And so an example of someone I worked with, I can't take credit for this. We worked together at zero and then they left was a data science um, company called, um, oh, I'm not forgetting the name. That's embarrassing. Anyway. Um, <laughs> we'll edit that out. <laughs> we can fix it in post-production. Um, but, you know, we worked together at Zero, the data science team, and, you know, I made them very aware of our ecosystem play. And then when they exited Zero, they basically started building a bunch of data science services that were exposed via APIs straight away. It wasn't just this in-house thing, which meant that one of their, uh, I probably can't talk to it too much indeed, but one of their earliest, earliest success stories was, you know, being able to partner across the globe with them with an up-and-comer in Canada which then led to them being able to get listed you know and, and this was a trajectory within two years and I, I believe it was just that fundamental awareness of the ecosystem opportunity being API first meant that the product that they built was externalizable but also that their path to growth was easier because of them feeling less protective about their castle. They were like, no, we know what we have here. We've got extremely strong mm -hmm. foundations. The castle isn't the thing, it's the activity. So um, I, I feel like that's just a very easy example, but, but there's other examples with you know the company I work with in Germany, um, just the fundamentals of how easily they can transfer data back and forth between a product they offer. They have a product that was a time-lapse um, offering to marketing companies 
but actually those time-lapse cameras started reporting back and the data they were reporting back meant that they were getting, you know, weather data, temperature data. They were then starting to, to analytics over the activity on the camera feed. So they would say, look, uh, you know, during COVID times, it was mask adherence. When it was security, it was like X number of people are wearing hard hats. And if you were wearing a product hat, you never would have seen the opportunity. You would never, you've never even have had the pipeline to push the data back into your core systems. And so... Mm. That's that's really interesting because I feel like part of the coaching that you'd be giving this hypothetical startup is not only knowing who you want to partner with to where it's like know your value. So a startup, say for example, has a unique value proposition. It's like cool, you know your unique value proposition, you know your customer. So that value proposition should be true if you go embed yourself in a partner, helping them increase value to their customers, or if you bring that partner into your target customer that you know your value and you're just giving them kind of um, ancillary. Or additional value on the side and so um thinking a little bit about um the products that inspire you who do you think are two companies that you think are just crushing it um in that space of thinking about ecosystem and like knowing their value and then where their value works with partners in or going to put themselves inside of partners i um i i kind of want to say stripe but that's a no-brainer so i'm, I'm going to steer away from it because but but one thing I'll say, I saw your LinkedIn, your Miro certified. So I think that you might really like the Miro's during I'm as well. I am fond of Miro as well. Actually, I've got reckons on Miro. I'll do Stripe for a moment and I'll do Miro. And I've got one okay. now to you. So I love Stripe because Stripe is under the hood. I don't think people really recognize it, but they know what they're about. They're a fundamental transaction infrastructure. If you kind of observe what they're doing, and I'll loop back to this on the third company I talked to. So, you know, it looks like they're enabling payments, but literally they've figured out that they're just kind of going, we don't care what the transaction is, we will enable it and we will enable anybody to leverage our ability to do that. So it looked like they were a payments company. Actually, no, they were getting brilliant at enabling transaction management and facilitation. So they are like mycelium growing underneath the world. And, you know, they're just, that's why they're valued, in my mind, as amazingly as they are, Miro. I love Miro. Uh, who doesn't? You know, um, I was even a Miro user back when they were called Real Time Board. I've searched my Gmail to see if I still have my Your original. original. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, they're original, but that, that's another story about product-led growth because I consumed them, but I, I died in the water because they weren't great then. But obviously, they unlocked something in the meantime. But I monitor them because I think they obviously have huge potential. I look at their pattern and it seems to be heavily outbound and I'm quite interested because I feel like you know they have a very and this is no slight to anyone from Miro absolutely not you know your worth these words will not harm you but my observations from looking at that is um it's a Miro centric view right now and that might be because of their maturity they're like look let's get people able to conduct um activities on us that they're used to outside of us because that keeps them on us um the next level for that is for that activity to create extended value. So that's quite abstract, I realize. But let's just say we connect to Drive and you can now you know, see what's happening in Drive. The next level of that would be deeper integration with Drive so that activity in your Miro board gets updated as somebody updates something. So Miro is actually where I'm monitoring my Drive, Google Drive activity because Google Drive is a dumpster fire. So let's be under no pretenses. There are several ways that it could be improved and Miro could be one of them. And so I think Miro moving beyond, but this is all about maturity and they are a product company with product like growth. So they'll end up there eventually, I'm sure as they focus on 
inbound and how do you create value for end users and, and you know and, and scenarios i think of is um this is a common one i do as a product manager i will do a lot of screenshotting of the websites we own and then want to present that back to the team so we'll do a full um, sitemap i would like to communicate that visually so i'll take a screenshot of all of the pages that we want to talk about in that day and i would like that i manually do this right now it's a pain in the guts but to feed the data underneath that so we see like uh, page views per day uh Mm -hmm. all that data which would be in ga why shouldn't that be an active feed on my on my mural board as well and that means mural. understood yeah that's a good feature i would use that that's a good feature request. yeah yeah like and wouldn't it be nice if we built it for them so that that's where right. that's the power of ecosystem on my mind if you can get comfortable enough for your position your moat is there others will create that value for you but all boats lift equally then at that point you could still be a 400 million dollar company underneath their 17 billion dollar valuation and they should not feel threatened by it um i think a lot about this i feel like um this wasn't my third action but you can tell i'm, I'm love this stuff i think about um i feel like canva should purchase notion that is my top tip of the day <laughs> <laughs> Why do I think that? Is, I, is that your Australian, New Zealand point of view? You're coming from that side. Well, <laughs> world it's, domination from it's my the, lack, of the world. It's my lack of understanding of the Canva valuation. So anybody from Canva call me out on this one. It is more, I feel like Canva is a communications tool. It is amazing. But what is the what is the end journey for their ability to provide communications? You know, they they, they like to communicate visually and or can do more later. I feel like Notion has the data that would enrich it. So therefore, imagine if you could programmatically turn, you know, they, they allow you to manage data. And that, it's totally left field, I realize. But I, I look at the two products and feel like one is better at doing communication and the other is better at just completely allowing you to tear apart data relationships and, and manage that. And, and interestingly, both are trying to do their API plays at the moment. And so that's why I, I say they should marry, even though it would be I mean Airtable Air may come in and try to do that as well, because what you're looking at is you kind of get these this, all the content that you need to make the visuals is sitting in this kind of database thing. It's like, how can I then kind of marry these two together? Yeah. Ultimately, when you're just kind of they're looking in front of it. Um, yeah, you mentioned something about screenshots in Miro, and it wanted to get me to an earlier piece of advice that I was curious about. I've had this problem myself <laughs> where I'm making an API. And let's say, for example, I'm in a sales pitch. I need to show the value that my company provides in their product and it sucks. I'm like taking screenshots of the product kind of like, you know, putting there some hacky mockups. Um, how important is it for storytelling whenever you are talking about an embedded feature or trying to show somebody the future that can be enabled by some of these things? And, you know, I'm thinking a little bit about even just the Canva example that he says like how could you start to explain like hey there's so much value that could be unlocked in the ecosystem you know so talk a little bit about in your career how has storytelling changed for you because starting in the engineering space and then kind of moving over to this bigger vision has been obviously something real for you yeah i think yeah we've we've got a great story around that like um we were very engineering based our, our product leader you know in the first five you know even though it shifted but i can't remember the timeline exactly but you know we'll say the first five i think we were extremely engineering led you know the product was very much we were so close to what was a technical domain that it really informed everything we did it was quite pragmatic and i'd say at the time we were you know less good at storytelling then you know several years ago we had nick our current egm join us from 
vend <laughs> and he, his background is marketing and you know you can see what's going to happen here that you know the marriage of marketing and tech meant that we started to realize that we were terrible at storytelling and i think he has spent the last five or six years at zero basically helping us storytell not just externally but internally and I, and i think almost internally is 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 important now to your point when you're when you are pitching to another party that storytelling is extremely vital and it's really hard because the options available with an api are unbounded potentially and so therefore providing a succinct story around the value prop is really hard and so nick uses the analogy of like electricity and the plug and 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 i like that i think that gets certain people over the line there's no one way to communicate this opportunity but no matter what when you distill it down it can sometimes become very limited and so for me i think it's it depending on the direction i i you know i i don't I haven't been in the same rooms as you, but I definitely talk to the ecosystem, the opportunity and value creation. Probably the one I lean on most is, is the externalized value creation and that like, you know, if COVID has told us anything is that borders will constrict in times like we've just had and the movement of mental capacity and, and humans will, will stop. And therefore, you know, your APIs will allow you to move value to another location where somebody can actually leverage it and, and, and X multiply it. Now, if you were talking about storytelling in specific use cases, again, we've just been through that, you know, um, it wasn't my product, but you know, there's a, there's a product coming up the line and, and it's really challenging, even internally at zero for a product company to, to understand, Hey, look, when we leverage APIs, this is how they could manifest. And you almost have to paint a story around the end user and how many of those are impacted by this. And it, quite often has to be atomic. You have to give one use case and back that. And hopefully that's the one that gets people to at least bite initially. Um, mm -hmm. And you can probably confirm this in your experience. I'm not sure if that's how it plays out for you. No, for me, it's it's a little bit of, I need to show them like a vision. And I, I go back to the um, just classic, classic UX principles for that. Whereas like you're showing somebody a prototype and if I described it to you, you might, have a vision in your head, but if I show it to you, even in like a hacky balsamic something, you're like, okay, your API can do this. And so, you know, and I've even found myself in zero taking zero screenshots to try to show somebody like a value that can be unlocked, um, you know, with this, when you're thinking about like embedded finance and things like that. We, but, yeah, we absolutely do that then. Yeah. Like we, so we, hilariously enough, we screenshot zero blue as we try to advocate back to, you know, because that is, mm -hmm. You know, as a product company that has, you know, three million plus customers, the organization is disproportionately larger than we are as an ecosystem, even though we create disproportionate value for the business under the hood. And so we have to speak in their language. So when we are speaking to zero, advocating for opportunities, you know, let's just say we're talking about, you know, new appetites, we definitely have to put that in a zero context. And so absolutely, there are screenshots, tightly little cropped pictures and, you know, that aligns to to this world because you can't show a text field or a series of boxes or whatever the postman representation is of your APIs and go, Hey, look, value here. <laughs> um, people, people are running to the, to the doors to buy the, the postman uh, request there. Yeah. <laughs> they want, they want the visual. Yeah. So I, yeah. so I think whenever, you know, we pitch Canva on this, it's going to be, I need to show somehow I'm inputting something in a notion table and then it automatically posts to my social media feed with a yeah. Canva image is pretty much the, that's the zap in the middle there. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. So 
a, a little bit one one uh just practitioner tools of the trade question before we close up um zero obviously has had an opportunity to like try out probably every startup that was building dev tools and things like that in your product stack and um you mentioned earlier still using google analytics to kind of pull in and kind of see how people are doing things so uh, what are two tools or vendors as a product manager in your product craft that you love? And if you were going to go like, say, for example, build Richard Fortune IO, you're like, okay, well, I know that I at least have to be using these two products because I love them. So. Oh, that's a good one. I think, uh, you know, this may be less compelling from an API perspective, but absolutely Miro. Uh, it's just going to be that it, as a tool to communicate, not just, UI or UX, but it, it, it can very easily visualize flow of data. So in the world that we're in, that's that's going to be a no-brainer. And then it goes way beyond that. It, it's a very powerful tool um, in, in facilitation in general. Um, hilariously, I mean, I'm not I'm not um, immune to Miro overload as well. You know, you know, <laughs> definitely there's a limit to how much I can Miro, even I. But um, I think that's you know that's a no-brainer. That's a tool that helps me communicate the way I like um, and helps me communicate technical concept to non-technical people, even though I would see myself as on the non-technical side of things in the world I operate in. There are, you know, when you work with devs, you get told every day that you are not the technical person in the room. And I'm okay with that. Um, I think probably a tool that I would explore depending on what I'm trying to do is whatever tools enable me to, like, let's just say it was a SaaS product and it, it was API based just, you know, to stay in the realm of where we're at today. It probably would be something like Postman or anything anything that can help me communicate the value of what I'm doing with the least amount of effort. And so Postman, if I want to do it, make my APIs interactive with the least amount of effort. You know, you know that's changing. Assuming I was API first, my dev team of one engineer or myself, we would probably just quite easily have a client that you know allows you to just do something locally. There's no reason not to anymore. But let's just say there's there's another reason. Um, I would probably take any of the off-the-shelf documentation solutions. I would not be baking my own, not in the early days, not for the first couple of years. You shouldn't touch that. There's no need. There's, it's been a solved problem. We roll our own for other reasons. But um, as I spoke to, we want to connect it to our internal processes. But all of that is always up for um, debate as well. That's, that's kind of the number one rule. Just because you built it doesn't mean you want to maintain it for the next five years. So all the value it should you be building or buying. Um, and yeah, probably Miro. Analytics-wise, we did touch on GA. GA, I'm 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 kind of on the fence on GA. It is useful for watching kind of marketing activity, and and I'm not a marketer, so you know, in my low-calorie version of my, you know observing observing, you know, it, it's good enough. But I'm seeing way more powerful tools come to market now, and I kind of really like the pattern that I'm, you know, is being set up with Mixpanel. I think that's probably the, the place to go to, uh, you know, in that its ability to kind of feed data into. Um, and then the world's your oyster. I mean, I'm I'm always out there just looking for tools. I will just be like, boom, 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 boom. you know, I love I, I love technology. So I will be, you know, trying to hold myself back from using something new. Yeah, I, I find that my eyes are bigger than my stomach uh, when yeah. it comes to tools. And um, one that I have just absolutely loved in this journey is Segment IO is really um, kind of made um if you're hungry and you want to eat off the buffet if you're saying everything to segment then you get to experiment a little bit more and you don't have to be so 
um, paranoia that you're going to lose everything whenever you go try out a new tool. So nice. it's definitely been, um, you know, one that as I kind of had just recently started a new adventure that I'm taking forward with me. But um, as we as we close it up, uh, you're moving on to your next adventure. Uh, you're leaving zero and you're making a geography move as well as a, um, a company move. <laughs> I'm getting some food and tea. <laughs> That's an awesome co-working space that, perk that you have. <laughs> so um, in the last question, um, what did you learn or like a big thing about yourself or about how you go about building products in this space that you're going to apply to the next adventure? That you're going on or adventures as you might have multiple fun hustles going at one time um uh probably two things i think when i was a quality engineer I, I didn't feel like i fit there because i was way more biased towards creativity and not really having a tolerance for operating as like hey look we test it was more like actually how can we not test how can we how can we create a system that doesn't require that humans verify other humans have not made mistakes you know that, that, that. so i think when i was an engineer i definitely felt like oh I, I kind of belong somewhere else unfortunately i had a manager who encouraged me to kind of move away from that and even though i loved it and i was completely happy and fulfilled moving into product had been an opportunity to explore that creativity and, and in its own right again it is not without its limitations. Product management is the art of kind of holding yourself back. It's not the art of unbounded creativity. And so I think the lessons I've learned is um, kind of always always revisiting what it is your why is and not just chasing the next gig. And so, you know, just observing back, kind of going like, look, actually, I do want to find a place I'm the best fit for. And I think, you know, startups are the place. It's the melting pot where you get to try new stuff. There's new rules, you know, as you said, you know, with good reason, exploring new things if they're a lever to help you move faster or gain traction or, or you know outpace anyone who you're trying to outpace you know that, that that's always a fun place to be um and i think probably the biggest lesson from working at zero is um you know i, I almost didn't take the job at zero of the interview number one i went in i was like oh apis and i was you know we, this is probably interesting um i was like oh apis i was like doesn't feel like it sits in front of humans much and I was trying to move in that direction I kind of wanted to evolve my like human-centric approach I was like mm -hmm. APIs and so I, I kind of bailed on that first interview uh, I was just like <laughs> not, not in a rude way this isn't you know this wasn't this isn't San Francisco it's Wellington so you know there isn't like a hundred opportunities out there but I was like look I uh, frankly don't think this is a perfect fit for us but we came back around and I had skills they needed and then it turns out actually I love this stuff I I am not an accountant. I have spent 12 years at zero and know very little about the ledger, but I am very, very knowledgeable about platforms and ecosystems. And that's what I've learned is you never know what's going to be the pathway to your passion and ecosystems and platforms are my passion. And I mean that not because of the fiscal or business opportunity. I mean it because of the diversity of opportunity in the same way you and I might graze for apps for leverage. I look at ecosystems and go, we haven't seen anything yet like this is this whole space is for leverage and it's such an exciting place and the more people you meet in this space the more exciting stories you hear about it's almost like startups 2.0 or you know ios 2.0 except it's 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 global in the SaaS space so that's a long-winded answer but hopefully it, it gives you a nice 360. I, I like how i like how you were like there's not enough humans in this role and now you're talking about ecosystems that are full of humans and the, the value can unlock for yeah. all these humans and so it's almost like uh, when you started in this ecosystem role it was an exponential human value versus yeah. incremental human value on kind of just doing transactional things 
And so that's really cool that you've come full circle on that. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know when the penny dropped on that one, but it wasn't in the first few years. <laughs> I can tell you, I'm not that you know, it's easy. I, I could be a revisionist and go, yeah, yeah I've seen. It was no. from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely not. But the penny dropped, and I remember saying that. It's like, like this is this is this isn't yeah an exponential reach opportunity. And if we do this, the better we do this, the greater the reach. And that's the probably the most exciting thing. And you know, when we met in that panel. It's why platform experience is so important to me because actually there's multi there's many participants operating in this space and actually we've got to look at the whole picture if we're going to figure it out because if we look at it atomically we end up making trade-offs and actually reduce the value you know in the same ways of same ways as i imagine vcs look at their portfolios when you're a platform operator you're looking at you know portfolio enablement without your money and at stake <laughs> the better you are at it the better the whole system will run and that's you know it's really exciting that's awesome well i'm gonna i'm gonna pause this interview here um and um thank you for being here today